0: To death. All right, if you have your Bibles this morning, let's turn to the book of Numbers. Now as you know, we have been coming through the, the whole Bible, book by book. And what we want to accomplish for you is to give you an understanding of how the Word of God really lays itself out. We put a lot of emphasis in this church on the Word of God. In fact, it's our only emphasis. We don't exist for any other reason other than to teach you the Word of God. That's all we're here for. That's our job. That's the job of every church. Unfortunately, many churches lose sight of that and get caught up in everything else. But God forbid, we don't want to go there. We want to stay with the book. It's the book that saves you. It's the book that will keep you. It's the book that will raise your family. And we want to stay true to the Word of God in teaching you the Bible. You're going to give an account someday at the Judgment seat of Christ for what you did or what you didn't do with the Word of God. I'm going to give an account someday as a pastor of this church for what I taught you about the Word of God. But we can't lose sight of that. So what we started, as you remember, well remember, we started, uh, when we started our church almost a year ago, we came through for months and months and months talking about every aspect that I could think of, of how to build a relationship with God. Because that's where it starts. And we went through things in the Bible and and laid out every aspect of how you can build a working relationship with God that will work for you in the time that we live in. Then when we got to that point, we decided that we were going to start coming through the Bible. I know the men's are meeting on Saturday morning, and they're talking about the keys to study the Bible, uh, Thursday night Bible study. It's your time to ask any question you want to ask about the Bible. And uh, as we come through on Sunday, we're coming through book by book. Now, we have a goal. We have a purpose. What I want to do is not, I'm not just here to try to, cram all information in about every book of the Bible. I'm here to show you when you read through the Bible what to look for. Many of you are taking the tapes or taking your notes and week by week you're cataloging what we're giving you in your own Bible, that when you're done, you understand that book of the Bible as far as what you need to look for, what that Bible, what that book is dealing with, what it shows you, that you begin to see the progression of the Word of God as we come through the Bible. The Bible's like a picture book. The Bible's like a picture puzzle. It's like one of those 10,000 piece puzzles you buy uh, and try to put together. When you buy the box, when you buy the puzzle, on the front of that box is the picture. When you dump it out, what you got are a bunch of pieces. You have to put the pieces together to get the picture. And anybody who's done it knows that you will spend the rest of your life trying to put that picture together of that puzzle by just trying to interlock all the pieces. What you do is you find all the pieces that have the flat corners. And you build you a foundation or a framework of that picture. Once you get it completely framed, then you start and work from there inward, piece by piece. And I was never good at picture puzzles. I don't have the patience for it. My mother was a champion. Every New Year's Eve, she would stay up all night long and and put one together. I, I could never do it. But I learned how to do it. And that is to start from the outside and work in. It's the same way with the Bible. The Bible is a puzzle. And that puzzle is thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces. And those pieces have to interlock together. And when you put those pieces together, you get a picture. You know what the picture is of? It's the picture of what God's doing from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22. That's what the picture is. Now most people today don't have the patience to study the Bible the way that they should. So it's a lot easier today. And the way I always did picture puzzles is I just cut the pieces to fit. Well, that sounds like it's easy, but it doesn't give you a very conducive picture of what you're looking at. In fact, I'm the only guy in the world who can take the picture of a lamp and a, a lamp and a piece of fruit and come out with a, uh, a nice bubbling brook by a farm someplace, you know. Uh, you can't do that. What we're doing is we're coming through the Bible, laying out the foundation. We're giving you the framework. The rest of your life, you'll be able to use the material to build the picture. There is no way. Uh, in you know one hour or 15 minutes or however long I preach uh, you know on Sunday morning that I can give you everything that's in these books. But what I can give you is the framework of these books to show you what you need to look for. And I don't know, maybe you've seen it already. The Bible is filled with patterns. You find Genesis. Remember when we studied Genesis? Watch how this thing worked. First five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch. They're the first five books of Moses. Moses writes the first five books of the Bible. In Genesis, we saw, and watch how this thing progresses. In Genesis, we saw the book of the beginnings. We saw God starting it out absolutely perfect and right, man destroying it. And where Genesis chapter 1 through 3, it starts out perfect with God. In Genesis chapter 50, the last verse starts with a man dead in a coffin in Egypt. Picture of this world. In the next book, we saw Exodus. What do we find in Exodus? We found that man in a coffin in Egypt redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Picture of Genesis, God doing it right, man doing it wrong, but then God coming back in Exodus and redeeming man by the blood of a Lamb. Then we saw Leviticus, after you're saved, we saw the sacrifice, the priesthood, after the order of Melchizedek, and you have all the progressions in the first five book of Moses that deal with what happens to you and go over all plan of God in the first 5 books of the Bible just the way they lay themselves out now we come to the book of numbers the book of numbers brings you to the next event in your life after you're saved the next event in your life that after you trust Christ as your own personal Savior and you get redeemed and you realize that God brought you from sin and now you know you're in the priesthood, you know, understand about the ministry, the next book in that Bible shows you the next major New Testament doctrine you need to understand. And that is the warfare of the believer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you so much. And we thank you, Father, for this Bible. We thank you for the Word of God that you've given us. May we learn from it, Father, in every aspect. May we see it as it is, the mind of God, the mind of Christ. May no one or anything ever take us from this book or this book from us. May we always just love it like we love you. May we equate it as your words as the very holiest words this world has ever seen. And, Father, we thank you today. Bless these people. They've come here to get a blessing from your word. Not anything that I've got to say, not anything that I know. Lord, I am just as dumb and stupid as anybody on this planet. And Lord, I, I don't have anything if it wasn't for you. And Lord, I acknowledge today that anything that I say that may sound good, anything that I say that may be true, anything that I say today that may wow somebody or open their eyes to the Word of God, it isn't because of me. It's because of you in that book. God, I give you all the honor and glory, uh, Lord, that's, that's due you. You are worthy, Father, of our praise, of our worship, and you are worthy of the glory and because of the things that you've done in our lives and because of this majesty of a book that you've given us. Help us to always love it, but always look to you as the author, uh, Lord, of our salvation and our faith. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now the book of Numbers, that's a strange name. You know why it's called the book of Numbers? Because in that book, the Bible says that they are numbered for war. Chapter 1, verse 3. The book of Numbers has 36 chapters. It has 1,288 verses. And it has 32,902 words. You keep wondering why I keep giving you those? Wait till we get to the book of Psalms and I'll show you why. But we don't have time to go there today. But that's why. There's a method to my madness. I'm not just quoting that because I've got some extra space here. Uh, There's a reason for that. But Numbers is a strange name for this book in the Bible. But we find out the reason why in chapter 1, verse 3, when the Bible says they were numbered for war. And the book of Numbers brings us to the point where God has brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. Redeemed them. Redeemed them from the sin of Egypt, the book of Genesis says. And then we saw last week how he explained to us and gave to them the aspect of the priesthood. Showing them that there is a priest order that God wants, a religious statue that God wants them to follow. And now we see the great New Testament doctrine of the warfare of the believer. Let me explain that to you for just a moment. In the book of Ephesians chapter 6... We're told about the warfare of the New Testament Christian. Now the difference between the Old Testament battles and the New Testament battles are very easy to understand. In the Old Testament, we're dealing with a literal, visible kingdom. The kingdom of heaven. Talked to you about it before. Something you have to absolutely understand if you're ever going to figure the Bible out. In the New Testament, we're dealing with a spiritual kingdom. The kingdom of God. One is literal, given to Israel in the Old Testament. The other one is spiritual, given to the church in the New Testament. And what we have is that the warfare in the Old Testament is a literal warfare. They have literal armies that go out and fight literal battles with literal swords, with literal spears. And it's a, it's a concept that God says, okay, I've given you the land. And that land is called the promised land. And that land is yours. And you're going to have to fight to get into it, and you're going to have to fight to keep it. But he said, here's the best part of the deal. As long as you love my word, and as long as you keep me as your God, and as long as you and me are just like that, don't be afraid of the other literal nations that are out there. The Amalekites, the Hittites, uh, the the Hivites, the Jebusites, uh, the Midianites. There's a score of them that hated Israel, wanted to keep them out of the land, and God said, don't worry about them. In fact, here's the way it'll work. If one of your men will stay true to the Word of God, when he goes out to fight, that one guy will take 10,000 men out. That's pretty good odds. He's saying, you don't have to worry about the battles. You don't have to worry about the fighting. All you have to worry about is you love me with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and all of your soul. And they fought literal battles in the Old Testament, all right, in the New Testament. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians chapter 6 uh, says, uh, and verse 12, it says, For we, the church, wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, the New Testament warfare isn't with guns, bombs, swords, and all those things. The warfare that you and I are up against, and this is what you have to understand, is a spiritual warfare. We don't fight the Amalekites. We don't fight the Hittites. We don't fight the Goliaths. We don't fight the Midianites. Our warfare is with spiritual wickedness in high places. Principalities, powers, the devil and his crowd. It's a spiritual battle. Now, when you come on down through the book of Ephesians chapter 6, you'll find that you and I are given seven pieces of armor. Loins girded about with truth. Breastplate of righteousness. Feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Shield of faith. Helmet of salvation. Sword of the Spirit. Praying always with all prayer and supplication. Seven pieces of armor that you and I are to use in this warfare. But I want to tell you something. There's a strange thing about Ephesians chapter 6. And there's a strange thing about the warfare that you and I are in. Because when I read down through Ephesians chapter 6, it talks about we wrestle not against flesh and blood. It talks about the armor. It talks about the warfare. It talks about all of the things that it is. But I have never found any place in Ephesians chapter 6 where I'm ever told to fight. I mean, I got all the armor, it talks about the warfare, but there isn't one place in that chapter where it tells me that I, as a Christian, am to go out and fight this battle. To the contrary. In fact, I don't know any place in the New Testament that it says that I'm to fight in, a, fight in this warfare. Now, I know Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, I fought a good fight, but he's talking about the overall concept. No, no, no. I want you to understand. When you come down in chapter 6, you don't have to turn to it. Let me read it for you. It says down here in verse 11, it says, Put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Then it says in verse 12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against pride, prince of power, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Then it says in verse 13, To withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Then he says in verse 14, stand therefore. You know what I got from that chapter when I read it? I'm not supposed to fight. I'm supposed to stand. Jesus does the fighting. My Bible says down there in verse 10 that I'm to be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. I'm not to fight this battle. I'm to take a stand. And when I take a stand for the Word of God, Christ fights my battles. That's why the Bible says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. It's Christ. It's Christ. And I began to look at that. And I I saw that years ago. And I I thought to myself, wow, you know what? Here we got a bunch of God's people wondering why they fail every day. Wondering why they can't get the victory in their Christian life. And the truth of the matter is they can't get it because they're trying to go out and fight it themselves. And I got news for you. You may be the toughest guy in the world i got news for you. You may be the smartest girl the world has ever seen. But you are not smart enough to tangle with the devil. You are not smart enough to go one-on-one with the devil. And the Bible says that God never intended for you and me to fight this battle. I am to make up my mind and take a stand. And when I believe a book and follow that book, I don't have to fight the spiritual battles. God fights those battles for me. Now, I don't know if you know this or not. Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3. You've got seven periods of church history. I know you know that. And those seven periods of church history start with Christ and run all the way up to the time that we live, the later in church right now, in the day and age that we live in, and it ends with the rapture of the church. But you realize that, that in light of what I've just said, That every period in church history had a doctrinal issue they had to stand for. In other words, as the church grew and came through time, biblical issues came up that the church had to decide was the issue for their day. Because all around the world, everybody was saying, this isn't true. And the church had to decide that it was true based on the word of God and say, you know what? I don't care what the whole world says. We believe what the book says, and we are going to stand on this issue. And they paid the price for it. They paid the price. In the early church, they believed that Jesus Christ was God, the deity of Christ. In a world that believed there were millions of gods, the Roman Empire, the Christians believed there was one God. One true God and all the other gods were false. And there were religious groups that were coming along and and once believed that. And now we're shifting over and saying, well, I don't know. And you know what? There was a group of people that said, I don't care what the world says. I don't care what Rome says. I don't care what some of you Christians are vacillating toward. We know what the Bible says. And we are going to stand on that doctrine. You know what? They went to the Colosseum for it. They paid for it in their blood. A little bit later on in the next period, there was an issue of, of the virgin birth. And there were people coming in and saying, wow, you know what? I'm not sure Christ was, was born of Mary. I'm not sure that Mary wasn't married and, and, and it, uh, it, uh, it, I don't believe maybe he was. And the church had to take a stand on that doctrine. Every period of church history. There was a time when the church was bombarded about the doctrine of eternal security. There were a bunch of people out there saying, you can lose your salvation. And the church had to take a stand on that issue. There was a time when the church was faced with uh, the amillennialism and postmillennialism. And there were people who were saying, Christ isn't coming back to establish His reign. We're going to establish. And the church had to take a stand. There was a time when they argued about baptism for salvation. And it was a group that were saying, well, we, yeah, we know what you're saying, but we believe now that baptism is part of it, and you got to be baptized to be saved. Acts 2.38, you know, and all this. And the church said, no, you know what? We know what the Bible says, and we are going to take a stand on that doctrinal issue. Every period of church history. Every church period. The church has had an issue, doctrinally, that has had to take a stand, And it was the prevailing issue of that church. And every problem, every situation, every turn of events, everything that damaged Bible Christianity was centered around that issue. We live in a Laodicean church age. Our issue was in the virgin birth. Our issue was in the deity of Christ. Our issue was not eternal security. Our issue was not premillennialism. Our issue is not salvation through the blood. Our issue is not predestination or Calvinism or Arminianism. Those things have been sought out, dealt with, and settled. Our issue is simply this. Did God know what he wrote when he wrote a Bible? My issue and your issue is, is that book true or is it not? There's 5,000 translations out there and they all say something different. Do you have the exact words of God, or is everybody just take their, what they want? You know what the Bible studies consist of today in most churches? You get everybody in a little round circle. Everybody gets their own version of the Bible. And somebody will read a passage. And they'll say, well now, what do you think it means? And then what do you think it means? And everybody goes around and says, this is what you think it means. And then everybody is done. They say, wow, wasn't that a great time? No. God has one absolute truth. We get the guys that went around and says, and this little song that was popular years ago, it says, God says it, I believe it, that settles it for me. And everybody's singing that around, ha ha, that's a really good thing. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Hey, I got news for you. God said it. That settles it. It doesn't make any difference whether you believe it or not. Where do you get in this thing at? The issue for this church, not this church, the church today, the Laodicean church is that you have an infallible, absolute stance. You see, it wasn't an issue in all the other churches because there was only two Bibles. Now we got 10,000 today and it's an issue because people don't understand that even though there's 10,000 translations, there's still only two Bibles. One of them God's and one of them the devil's. I'm sorry, I don't know how else to say it. But that is our issue. And that's why the Bible says that you and I are to stand. I'm not to fight. I'm to find out what the issue is in the last days of my church period. And I'm to take an absolute stand and pay the price for it. You know what he said in Ezekiel chapter 22 verse 30? Years and years and years a hundred years ago, God was talking about the nation of Israel who found themselves in a similar situation. And he said, I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap. But I found none. You know what God's looking for today? Simple. God's not looking for your intelligence. God's not looking for anything that you've got to offer or I've got to offer. God is looking over this world just like He did in every period of the church history and trying to find a man or a woman who will take the time from their busy schedule to find out what that book says and what the issue for God is today and then stand! That's where we're at. That's where we're at. Now, that's the book of Numbers. Now, the book of Numbers breaks down like this. Now, you got to remember, we're told to stand. In the book of Numbers, the issue was God wanted them to take a stand. And he said, if you stand, you may have to go out and fight those nations literally, but I'll kick the wadden at them before you get there. Well, there's some places back there that if they're getting ready to fight and they're going to go out and they're sharpening their swords and getting them all ready to go, you know what God does? He just calls up about 500,000 wasps. And he's down there, down there saying, they're down there practicing. Rah, 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 and they're getting all worked up, ready to go. And he says, take it easy today. I got about 10, 500,000 big old wasps back here and they got nothing to do. And I'm going to send them down there to them Hivites, Pivites, Jezebelites, Klingons, whoever they were. I don't remember this story. And I'm going to send them down there. And those guys are down there. And I'll tell you what. And that's God. God takes the most minute things of this world and whips your tail with them. And those big old boys, those giants. Big old giants. Big old swords. Legs like that. Looked like that girl knocked you out at home plate the other night. I'm telling you. They're standing down there, and they're saying, we're going to get him. And their, their sergeants are walking back and forth, and they're saying, kill the Jews, kill the Jews. Baal's great, Baal's great, Baal's great, Baal's great, Baal's great, and off they go. That's my God. That's my God. And they're going ready to fight, and Israel coming down the hill, and all they saw with this... Big old cloud zooming all over these guys these guys running for home man God says you don't have to worry about it you love the book and you love me there'll be nobody stand before you same thing today you love the book you love him take your stand let him laugh at you let them make fun of you it's all right you watch how God blesses your life and what he does with them now the book of numbers breaks down into two sections It covers the 40 years of their wandering in the wilderness. And it follows the line of their march from Sinai, where he got the Ten Commandments, to Kadesh. And then from Kadesh, that'd be chapter 1 through chapter 19. Then from Kadesh, chapter 20, all the way to chapter 36, when they get to the Jordan right before they go over. And that's important. The reason why he broke it down, because he wants you to see something. Hey, if you've just been saved, or you're just getting into the Bible, or you're just starting to figure this thing out, let me clue you in. You're going to get into warfare. You're going to get into battle. And the closer they got to the promised land, the more the battle intensified. And the closer you and I get to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the battle is going to intensify. Now, I'm just telling you that. You don't have to pay extra for that. That'll come with a standard tape fee. But what it does... It shows the pitfalls and the troubles that you and I are going to get into when we, through this world, quit standing for God and let the world intimidate us. It shows the obstacles in life that you and I have to face. Sometimes they're family. Sometimes they're on the job. Sometimes they're other Christians. And sometimes it's just your garden variety, idiot stick, unsaved man or unsaved woman. But it leaves you with a big choice. Because the obstacles are huge sometimes. And sometimes we look at them, they're almost insurmountable, almost impossible. And it brings us to a decision that you find in the book of Numbers, when they're numbered for war, that those obstacles will either turn you to God or turn you from God. Now in chapter 1 through chapter 19, I'm going to try to give you the high points. There ain't no way I can give you everything that's in here. But in chapter 1 through chapter 19, they journey from Sinai to Kadesh. And God begins to prepare them for battle. And you know what we see? We get an nice idea of the devil's battle plan to keep them. You've got to remember now, they're God's people. And God had a plan for them, and that plan was for them to get into the promised land where they could be fruitful and be and establish that literal, visible kingdom. The devil's job was to keep them out. You know, they're down in Egypt 430 years. You know what the devil's doing while they're out in Egypt for 430 years? He's raising a rice of giants and all these nations that hate God and God's people, and he's putting them right smack Dab in the middle of that land that God said to Abraham is going to be your land. And when those children of Israel come out, man, they start to move. They've heard the stories. They flew their jets over and got photo recon. They, get their, they sent their elements out, the probe, and they come back and they say, Whoa, you ought to see what's waiting for us over there. Yeah, I know. Land of milk and honey. Oh, I know the grapes of Eskar. I know the grapes are as big as volleyballs, and I know that. But you ought to see the big guys that are eating the big grapes. We're like grasshoppers. There's giants, man, and there ain't just one of them. It ain't a sideshow going through. That's got Andre the Giant, the pro wrestler. These guys are twenty feet tall, three thousand pounds apiece, and they are hundreds, thousands of them. What are we going to do? Yeah, that's where it's at. When I come to chapter 3, when I look at verses 40 through four I'm just going to have to give you the references. You'll have to look them up later, but here it is. You know what you find? You find God starting where He always starts. He always wants to remind you about the day He saved you. You know what you find in chapter 3, verses 40 through 51? You find the redemption of the firstborn. Let me explain that. And what it does here, it shows you how that God is an orderly God, how God has everything lined out. Because remember down in Egypt in Exodus chapter 12, when they were told to put the blood on the door, and some of them didn't do it. And God came through that night, and he simply said, anybody who doesn't have the blood on the door is going to have their firstborn killed. Well, you know, you don't get all the information there, but when you figure the whole thing out, and you go over here, you find out how many babies were killed that night. Oh, yes, yes, you do. 22,273 were killed that night in Exodus chapter uh, 3, verse 43. 22,273. Because here, he's telling them to sanctify another group of firstborn to replace the group that was killed in Egypt because I am an only God. And besides, you don't guys figure this out yet, but the firstborn, that isn't going to ever get the blessing. No, no, no. No, it wasn't. It was Abel, not Cain. It was Jacob, not Esau. It was Isaac, not Israel. The firstborn is never going to get it because the firstborn is a picture of you first birth that puts you into this world in sin. It's always going to be the secondborn." So he says, "The firstborn are gone, replace the firstborn with the secondborn, because ye must be born again. New Testament doctrines all the way back. Of course, they didn't understand it, but I do. I got me a Bible that tells me those things. So I come to chapter 6. In chapter 6, I found the Nazarite vow of separation. This is a picture of your life and my life. That Nazarite was a Jew. And he, when he took on a special vow to do something for God, he was allowed, not allowed to have anything from a vine tree. Not allowed to get his hair cut. Not allowed to touch any dead body. Shows you and me a picture of of the way our life should be. Once you get saved, you have taken a vow to God. And those three things are very interesting. First of all, nothing from a vine tree. Because the vine tree has to do with original sin. So he says, no vine tree. You're going to find in the Bible that God has his wine. The devil has his wine. God's wine is grape juice. The devil's wine is Mogan David or whatever you want to call it. God has his, the devil has his. He says, nothing from the vine tree. Then he says, don't get your hair cut. The reason why it's not to get his hair cut, because the Bible says over there in 1 Corinthians, that it's a shame for a man to have long hair, and that Jew was not allowed to cut his hair, because he was to bear the shame and the reproach of who he was as a nation. So he says, no haircut. Let your hair grow long and scraggly, and people will say, what a mess he is, because that's the way you really are before I saved you. Illustration. Then he says, you can't touch anything dead. Picture of unsaved people. So you're to take, they're to take those things out of their lives because it pictures a separation that you and I have the day we got saved from the things of this world. Then once he separated them out, chapter 9, he says, now, you're on a journey. And that journey is going to take you a ways. And he says, here's what I'm going to do. So you don't get lost in the process I'm going to lead you with a cloud by day, want to mark that, and a pillar of fire by night, want to mark that. What is all that talking about? He led them on the path that he wanted them to go by the cloud during the day and the fire by night. Now, I don't want to get too deep on this, but I'll tell you this. You want a key here? All right. That cloud by day. Cloud by day. Cloud by day. Acts chapter 1, he says, you saw me go up in a cloud, I'm going to come back in a cloud. Picture the second coming of Christ. Fire by night, church age. Thy word is a lamp under my feet, light under my path. you got everything you need right there. God's going to lead you through the daytime, God's going to lead you through the night. He's going to put a bit cloud in front of you during the day so you can't get off the track. That cloud is that book. Hey, you're going to put a fire in front of you at night when you can't see to lead and guide you. That fire is that book. In other words, when you start this journey and you start this warfare, God's going to lead you all the way through the daytime and through the nighttime. There will never be a time in your life when you'll have to tread it on your own. God will always lead you the way He wants you to go. Then we come to chapter 10. In chapter 10 now, we see the result of the bad counsel that Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, gave him back in Exodus chapter 18. And we begin to see it come to fruition now, where it begins to cause the problem. Now I need to say this, because this is very important. I need to let you know, and you need to understand that back in Exodus chapter 18, Jethro comes to Moses, and he gives him some advice about being the leader of God's people. And this advice is taught in every major seminary to Bible college today as great advice. I know churches today that set their pattern and structure based on this. I've been to seminars where the guys got up and they said, "Well, we've got the great example down through here and this is exactly how you do it because Moses came Jethro, Jethro came to Moses and he said, "Now look, look, let me show you how to make this thing work. And I'm going to tell you right now, and if you don't believe it or you want to see it, you make an appointment with me, bless your heart, I'll even buy you dinner. No, you buy dinner, I'll use the Bible. And I'll show you from that book how that thing is absolutely the biggest, stupidest thing that you could ever get into. And what it is a picture of is men today trying to tell you how to minister outside that book. Oh, yeah. He says down there, Jethro comes to Moses. And he says, chapter 18, verse 19, he says to Moses, Moses, hearken unto my voice, and I will give thee counsel, and God will be with thee. All right? (coughs) I'll give you a million bucks. I'll give you a million bucks. You show me. I don't want two. Just give me one. Give me half of one. (coughs) Show me one place in that Bible (coughs) where Jethro and God ever did anything. Just show me. Show me anywhere in that Bible where God did anything through. Jethro's not even a Jew. He's not even a Hebrew. He's a Gentile. And he comes in and he says, Oh, he says, listen to me, hearken unto my voice, and I'll tell you good counsel, and God will be with you. Hey, bugwit, I got news for you. God was already with him. We're talking about a man that the Bible says God met with him face to face. And Jethro's going to come in and say, Hearken unto my voice. And God will be with you because I'm telling you what. Give me a break. When did God, when did Moses need Jethro? I'm telling you. I mean, God never did anything in Jethro's life. And what you find today is men who have never won anybody to Christ trying to teach you how to win souls. Men who have never built a church trying to tell you how to build a church. Men who don't even believe there's a Bible on the face of this planet that's the absolute perfect Word of God trying to tell you about the Bible. How would it be if you were going to go to the Olympics and you have never run before? And you went up there and they said, Well, we're going to get you ready. We got a running coach that's going to work with you. And you say, Great. And you went in there and there was a guy in a wheelchair with no legs. And he said, Oh, I was born this way. Have you ever run? No. But I saw it on TV. Can't be too hard. You've never had any legs? You've never run? No. How are you going to teach me how to run? Well, in theory, it goes like this. I don't, when it comes to the Bible, I don't want your theory. Don't you tell me what it says if I don't see it in your life what it's done. I'm not interested in what you think. I'm interested in what the Word of God says. Let God be true and every man a liar. And we got people today that are telling young men how to build churches who have never built them. Trying to how to win people to Christ when they haven't won anybody to Christ. And trying to tell them all about the Bible. But if you sit down and you say, do you really believe you have an absolute, perfect, infallible book that's from God? They'll say, well, certainly not. Well, what in the world are you doing? That's Jethro. Listen to me. And oh, God will be with you because I'm telling you what the way it is. Moses didn't need Jethro. Moses had God. I'm going to tell you something, and you get it down. Don't you ever let any man put you above where that book is, including this man. You stick with me as long as I stick with the book. When I leave the book, you drop kick me through the goalposts of life just like you would anybody else. I am no better or no different. The only thing that makes me different is the fact that I do believe a book, but if there ever comes a day when I don't, Hit the road, man, and find you someplace that does. I'm telling you, mark that down in every book of your Bible. Every time you come to church, remember it. Every time you come to Bible study, think about it. I'm telling you, keep me accountable to that book. When I tell you there's a better way in that book, hit me down the road. But I'm telling you, there ain't no better in that book. That book's it. That book's it. Oh Jethro, he comes in there and he starts telling Moses all this stuff to do. And it's all contrary. It's all contrary. He says to Moses, you know what? You need to really focus on the big matters. And you just need to let all these other people do the other small matters. Oh, and that sounds so good. But you know what? My Bible says that it isn't the big things that mess us up. It's the little things. And I'll tell you something else. If you focus on the little things, you'll never get to the big things. You know why you got the big problems in your life? Now maybe you ain't figured this out, but let me help you here. You know why you got big issues in your life? Because you never learned to deal with the little ones in your life. Go ahead. Say amen. It's good. That's true. All right. Never mind. I'll say it myself. Amen, Brother Bob. Amen. You're really... Amen. I'm telling you, that's the problem. Next time I do that, would you close that pen before I sit on it? <laughs> so in chapter 10 and in chapter 11, we start to see the source of the problem. Bad advice from Jethro. Then we start to see what ultimately destroys them in time. The mixed multitude. Bible says in verse 1, "Them that were the uttermost part of the camp. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but in the Old Testament, when they moved and they set up camp, they put the Ark of the Covenant right in the middle. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And then all the tribes moved around that as close as they could. And they obviously could get so close and they got closer. And there were people that didn't, the closer you got, the closer you were to God, the priesthood, and everything that God was doing. The farther you got, see where I'm going with this? And I'm going to tell you something, every problem in every church today is started by the people who live in the uttermost part of the camp. Yeah, they don't want to get too close to God, they want to go to church, but don't take it seriously. Oh yeah, we go to Sunday school, we go to church, but you're not going to take that Bible literal, are you? Oh yeah, I found a long time ago, there's four kinds of people in every church, four kinds. Four kinds. There's people that make things happen. That's the kind you want. There's those that watch what's happening. And there's those that don't know what's happening. And then there's those that don't care what's happening. last two is the crowd you want to watch. That's the crowd you want to watch. This mixed two, the Bible says in verse 4, they fell a lusting. They said, we want flesh. Give us flesh. There's nothing but this dry, old manna type of the word of God. We want, we want flesh. And then they lost sight of what God had done for them. They say in verse 5, we remember when we were in Egypt, oh, we're out here and all we got to eat is that old Bible. Oh, we remember on Saturday night in the world, back there in Egypt, when we used to have the garlic and the leeks and the cucumbers and the melons and we did freely eat, freely? They were killing you by the thousands. Your grandfather was crushed under the stone that built the pyramids. Your mother starved to death. Your brother was killed in the brick line freely. But you know what? When you start hanging out with a mixed multitude, they start taking your attention what God did and start looking back and you start thinking that old world really had something good for you. There comes a point in your life. I don't know where it is for you. I don't even know the exact time in mind, but I know I hit it. <clears throat> when you come to the point in your Christian life where you are sure—I'm not saying you're perfect. I'm not saying you don't have problems. I'm not saying you don't have to temptations and fight things. And I'm not saying you don't fail. But I'm saying this: there comes a time in your life when there ain't no way you're going back to the world. There comes a time in your life when you look back and you say, "Was oh, that stupid, man?" I'm made no way. Here on my worst day, no. I, there's nothing back there. I'm telling you what. But until you get to that point, you got to be careful. You got to be careful. Then in chapter 13 through 14, here you have four million people. God said, I've numbered you for war. They start on that journey. We see the mixed multitude, we see every battle, every opportunity, everything coming against them. And out of 4 million people, Bible brings to light two men, Joshua and Caleb. What a study. Out of 4 million people, there were only two guys. And I'll tell you what, it brings to light a great principle. And I'll tell you, you don't even want to forget this either. I don't care how dark it gets. I don't care if we are in the latest in church period. I don't care if we get so black that you can't see anything. I don't care if everybody in this world seemingly turns on the book and goes their own way. I don't care if every preacher on the face of this planet uh, turns their back and goes after his own agenda and does what he wants to do and loses the sight of what God's calling him to do. You know what? I'm telling you right now, and you can mark it down, in any time, in any period of church history, no matter how bad it got, no matter how dark it got, God always had his man. And back here, it's Joshua and Caleb. But it also brings up another truth. A lack of biblical truth will pervert your perspective. People are scared. They had the spies down the land in chapter 13. And in verse 13, they come back. And as I already said, they said, wait, guys, we need to think this thing through. I'm telling you, man, you don't know the promised land. Well, it's also the land of the giants. I'm telling you, they are big. And they are strong. And they are many. And I'm telling you right now, they are waiting down there for us. And they're going to get us. And they are absolutely, and I don't want you, and the people got scared. They said, oh, I don't know. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. Caleb says, let's go right now. Let's don't lose the element of surprise. Let's hit them. Let's hit them before they think we're coming. Let's let them go to sleep tonight. Let's go down there, let them have a nice party, get drunk. And now, you know, when they're all sobered and stupid around, let's just put on the silencers on the Uzis, and let's put on an airstrike, and let's go in there and wipe them out. They said, oh, no, they're too big. They're too big. You see, some of God's people, that's all they see is the negative. The people saw the obstacles. Caleb saw the opportunity. Caleb didn't care how big they were. He didn't. You know, the last thing you find Caleb, and I don't want to get into it too much because we'll get into it, we'll get into Joshua. But you know the last thing you see Caleb doing? They're just on the other side in the book of uh, of Joshua. And they're down there, and there's, there's one place left where all those giants are hanging out. And they're coming in there and and, and, they're, and they're all happy and joy because they're just this one little pocket, they got to get out with all these giants. And old Caleb comes in with a smile on his face and says to Joshua, I want that for my inheritance. Well, he's putting nine millimeters in his clip. He said, That's what I want. And he's picking frags up and putting them on his belt. And he's getting his stuff and he's getting his bazookas and his tanks lined up. And he says, That's my inheritance. Let me have it. And the last thing you see this guy doing, and he's 89, 90 some years old is heading up that mountain after those giants by himself. God help us to be Josh and Caleb. There's a lot of misunderstanding about the church today. And I'm not fighting anybody. I'm just telling you where my heart is what the word of God says. I've told you before, my job is not to build a building. We'll stay here forever. Knock that wall out, keep moving down. Say, what are you doing to get here? I don't know. They make some pretty big tents, don't they? That's not my call. I don't care. If God wants us to have something, that's fine. I just believe this. God always pays for what he orders. And when you, God didn't order it, then you got to wind up paying for it. And I ain't paying for anything God doesn't order. It's so all that God ordered, then God pays for it. Because that's not my job. i got one job, one job only one job only one job one job that is the train Joshua's and Caleb's that's my job My job is to take young men and young ladies that want to give their life to that book and take whatever time it takes, whatever I've got, whatever it needs, and my job is to simply to take the men and the women that God brings here that want to be better husbands, better wives, better soldiers, that want to learn how to stand on these last days before God comes back and take their stand on the absolute final authority in a world that doesn't believe it and link up hand to hand, arm to arm, and stand here for the Lord and stand and let Him fight. That's What I'm asking God to bring me and when God brings them I promise my job is simply to take their lives and to build them into Joshua's and the Caleb's that when everybody else is running for the trees when everybody else is scared to death we are moving up that mountain and we are going to kick some Babylonian tail now that is our job that is our job Then when you come to chapter 20 to chapter 26, we get the part 2 from Kadesh to Jordan. And we see the battles and the troubles intensify. And as I said, the closer you get to the promised land, the closer you get, the tougher it gets to stand. The more the battle intensifies, the better. the closer you get the home base where God wants you to be in your life, the more you're going to get it. The giants are going to come out of the woodwork. The more, once you decide in your life, you know what? I don't care what anybody thinks. I don't care what my friends think. I don't care what who thinks. I am going to do this because it's right and I'm going to stand off. The moment you take that stand, your battle is going to intensify. In chapter 20, you see the sin of Moses. And what a great story this is. And I don't know if you understand all that's taking place here or not, but let me just tell you the short version. Oh, it's worth the study. You'll find that Moses and the people are down in the wilderness. And they can't get any water. Now that wilderness is a picture of after you got saved and come out of Egypt to the world, there's nothing in this world that's going to satisfy you anymore. The water was bitter. They couldn't find any food, and God had to supernaturally bring the food to them, the manna, the quail, and the water. Picture of the Word of God. Picture of you and me after we're saved, nothing in this world satisfying anymore, and God supernaturally through that book giving us everything we need. Now, there's two places in the Bible where there's a rock and there's Moses And the people have no water. And Moses is told to get water out of that rock. The first one is back in Exodus chapter 17, verse 6. We didn't go through it back then because I figured I'd throw it in now. Can't do it all. But in Exodus chapter 17, the first time, they don't have any water. And God tells Moses, Moses, you take your rod and you go down to that big old rock And you take that rod and you smack that rock. And when Moses smote the rock, the water gushed out. That Bible says that that rock was a type of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And that was a picture of God smiting His Son on the cross. The rod that He's got in His hand is the rod of judgment. That's the same rod that He turned the waters to blood with in Egypt. And when he was told to take that rod and smite that rock, it was a picture of God the Father smiting his son on the cross of Calvary. And you know what happened. When they put the spear in his side, the water and the blood came out. And from his precious death came that precious book, My Water of Life. Oh, that type is so beautiful. And when he comes down there, and he smites that rock, and the water comes forth. And it's a picture of the day God smote his son. Isaiah chapter 53 said he was smitten of God. And the water, the word of God, the everlasting water of life, came from him. And that's because how you and I got saved. You see, that was Exodus. The book of redemption. Then we had what? Leviticus priesthood after you're saved now we're in numbers your warfare and they're having a tough time in the warfare so they don't have any water again picture you and me out of fellowship with God not getting anything from the word of God so this time he says Moses go down and speak to the rock Oh, the rod that he's got this time it isn't the rod of judgment now it's Aaron's rod the priestly rod is with him here verse 12 Aaron wasn't anywhere back in Exodus chapter 17 because he took the cross alone we're past the cross we were redeemed in Exodus now we're here and we're in this battle (coughs) and we're having struggles (coughs) and he says you speak to that rock you speak to that rock Because that rock is a picture of Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 where it says let us come boldly under the throne of grace. You only get saved once and then you have access to the Father and you go in and when you have a desire you speak to him Romans chapter 8 and it's a picture in numbers of your prayer life. Exodus chapter 17 is a picture of the crucifixion. Numbers chapter 20 is a picture after you're saved. You have total access to God as a priest and you speak to that rock and you'll get the water. You talk with him through prayer. But Moses fails. Now it can't be too hard on Moses. The people drug him down. The people wore him out. The people... Or so uh, unbelievably. Now we got to blame him to a certain extent. He knew better to listen to Jethro. He should have. He should have got rid of the mixed multitude when he had the chance. And Moses fails. But oh, this is the great truth. Because there's going to be times when I fail. There's going to be times when you fail. And yet I want you to see, the servant of God failed. But God brought the water out anyhow. God's going to get it done in spite of us, folks. I'm telling you. I mean, he failed. But God gets the job done even when we fail. Glory to God. He's got a plan. And I'm telling you. Those are great pictures to show you how these books are bringing you along. Well, then you got chapter 21. And in chapter 21, you got the great story of the serpent on the pole. You took your Bibles this morning and you turned to page 195. We could sing this song. Look and live. Look and live, my brother live. I have a message from the Lord, hallelujah, and the message is look and live. That's where that song comes from, Numbers chapter 21. You know what happened. The Bible says they're out there, they're in sin again. Oh, yeah. Yeah, always are. I mean, they're turning from God instead of turning to God. Always did. They have the same problem like you and I have got. And they're down there, and the Bible says God sends fiery serpents among them. And when they bite them, they die. Moses comes to him, and he prays to God, he says, God, you've got to heal these people. And he says, okay, Moses, here's what you do. You go and make you a brazen serpent. Brass, picture of judgment in the Bible. The, the, great, the, the altar where the sacrifice was burnt before he went into the tabernacle is called the brazen altar. It's made out of brass, a picture of God's judgment. You make this serpent out of brass. You put it on a pole. Picture of Christ dying on the cross. And when you hold it up, if anybody will look at that, look to the cross, they'll be saved. You know what? That thing was so profound, an impact, when these people were bitten, they needed to be healed, that they put that serpent on a pole and held it up. Every doctor you go to, every medical man you've ever been in your life, the symbol for medicine and healing is a serpent wrapped around a pole, Numbers chapter 21. You go in the army, get in the medical corps, you'll get a little collar tab that's got a pole with a big serpent round around it, a brazen serpent. You go to the American Medical Association, it's a pole with a serpent wrapped around it. Why? Because Numbers chapter 21 says that there was a serpent. Christ became a serpent. He became sin for us who knew no sin. And He took my place on the cross. And when I look toward the cross, and if you're here this morning and you're lost, if you'll just look to the cross, God will save you. God will save you. It was so impacting that in John chapter 3, when Christ was talking about being born again to Nicodemus and laying all that out, he said in verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Oh, and he was. Then we get to Numbers chapter 22, 23, 24, and 25. The story of Balaam and Balak. Oh, the story of Balak. He hates God. Another type of Antichrist, by the way. He hates God and he hates God's people. He wants to wipe them out. He's blocking the way. He doesn't want them to get to the promised land. He's part of the devil's scheme. And I'm going to tell you something. They will be the Balaks and the Balaams in your life. You can count on them. You better learn this lesson. He wants to stop the people of God just like the devil's got people out there that wants to stop you. So he calls up Balaam on the phone and gives him the contract to wipe out the nation of Israel. Balaam says, well, Mr. Balak, I appreciate the contract, appreciate the money. But let me tell you the problem. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3 says, God said, I'll bless those that bless them and I'll curse those that curse thee if I take a hand against them. Now there's a picture of an unsaved man believing what the word of God said. So much that he rejected a fortune because he knew what the Bible said was true. But he says, I'll tell you what, I got a plan. You want to stop them? You want to keep them from getting where they got to go? Here's how you do it. I can't do it. But if you can get their boys to marry worldly girls, if you can get the girls to marry all the other men from all the other nations, which God has told them not to mess with, because they'll bring in all the other gods, you won't have to kill them. God will come down and kill them. Oh yeah, yeah. And an interesting word shows up in chapter 25, verse 18. It's the word beguiled. And that word is such an incredible word. Because when Eve shows up back there in Genesis chapter 3 and the devil shows up to her and God says, what happened? The Bible says, Eve said, the devil beguiled me. When you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, where Paul's talking about the church, he says, but I fear lest by any means the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtleties show your minds, the church should be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. The devil wants to beguile you. You know where he beguiled Eve? He come in and told Eve that that's not what God meant. He said, yea, hath God said. We saw it when we got to the book of Genesis. Then he changed what God said, and he beguiled her. You know what the world does today? You know what theology does today? You know what churches do today? You know what the whole world, Christian world's about today? It's about saying, yea, hath God said, and then trying to tell you that God didn't know what he said. And beguiling you. Beguiling you. Look at it. Or listen to it. But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtleties. Here's the danger of the church today. Show your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Hey, God makes it easy. Man makes it tough. You know why man makes it tough? Because man wants to control you. You see, when you go to be a doctor, you go to go to medical school. And they do a lot of good things in medical school, but one of the things that they do for you there is teach you a language that nobody else understands. Hence, try to read your prescription. And to be a doctor, you have to have the worst handwriting in the world to begin with. But it's a a thing. They don't want you inside their world. When you go to a dentist, he talks to you incredibly. He talks about your upper bicuspids and your lower incisors. To me, it says you got holes in the big ones on the top and your ones on the little ones on the bottom aren't looking too hot either. But I couldn't charge you 100 bucks an hour if I talked that way. Every trade in this world, you go to a mechanic. He talks about your chilled retainer springs being stretched. Your cam being cracked. Your piston being scoured. Why can't he just say that thing that moves up and down and makes everything run, got a hole in the top and your crank that goes around this way is busted. No. He's going to charge me 200 bucks just in labor. And then $5,000 for the parts. No, it's everything in the world's that way. Everything. I don't care what it is. You go out and talk to your biologist. And I'm sure you all have one on call. You go out and talk to the conservation officer. And he says, yes, them Caius, carhodius, and Debitos are really giving us problems. He just said, the coyotes are really bad this year. But they put it in Latin. So you have to go to their school to learn their terms. So when you want to become a Christian, you've got to go to school. And you learn sodientology. angiology, apologetics, hemorrhoid nudics. You go and spend, listen to me, you go and spend $50,000, listen to me, to learn to speak like nobody in the Bible ever spoke. When Jesus became before the masses, and he stood up there on the mountain, 5,000 people, did he say, I want to speak to you about the transgender of the vertical Greek parasympel of the word, which is going to lay out the... In a of the heart of the inside crucicle, that you may understand the parable which is found in this passage, which we also then will study the angelology of the Bible, Sodientology of the Bible, and then we will conclude with the Sodientology of man. Everybody down there is saying, "Wow, he's really smart." What did he say? Well, I don't know, but boy, it sure sounded impressive. What was that word? Sodeontology? We didn't even have chewing tobacco that was named after that one time. And the whole world just goes awed. Now I want to tell you something. When it comes to being a doctor, thank God your language, but I can't get into it because you have a trade that is exclusive to you. You become a dentist, God bless you. You need to do it. Lawyers do the same thing. Thank God. Lawyers need to have it to keep people like me from practicing law. Everybody needs to have that language to protect their deal, and you need to go pay that if you're going to learn because that's a trade. Where it stops is when it comes to this book. Because you got the same Holy Spirit of God that Dr. Fine, Dr. Howard, and Dr. Fine's got. You've got the same book, you got you don't, don't you ever, see, you're intimidated into thinking that because you don't know the Greek and the Hebrew, that you can't get on par with God, and you've got to go somebody, some dead language that nobody in the world ever speaks anymore, and you've got to really just spend the rest of your life digging out the Greek nuggets. Let me tell you something, the universal language is English, the Bible has only been written in three universal languages all through history, Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New Testament, and English today, and you've got everything you need right in that book, doctor. Somebody says, first thing they ask when you go to pastor for a church, where you been to school? It isn't about, what do you know about God? It's where you been to school? What kind of degree you got? We had doctor so-and-so here. Doctor, doctor, doctor. We're laying a sea in church aid. There's so many doctors around here, but you know what? God's sick, the Bible says. He spews the angel out of his mouth. Say, what kind of degree do you got, Bob? I got my B.A. Really? Where'd you get that? The day I was born again. That's the only one I need. Everything else is just waste your time. I'm saying I ought to say this. Don't you let anybody tell you that you can't get that book and you can't have the relationship with God. It isn't about your IQ. It's about your attitude of heart toward what God said. The biggest idiots you ever met in your life have no understanding about what the Word of God said. You know why? Because they have beguiled us from the simplicity that is in Christ. God never spoke that way. All right, if you're a doctor, all right, if you're a mechanic, all right, if you're a lawyer, dentist, I'm all for it. But not for a Christian. You are to have the simple things. And when God wrote a book, He wrote it in fifth grade language that any idiot in this world could understand. And you can have as much with God as you want. But then. Chapter 31 of the truth, chapter 32. Oh, we get into another problem. And this is a great picture. All these poor people, they just can't, they just can't get out of it. I mean, they're on a journey, they're in a battle. They were told to stand, and they just keep getting defeated because of all the bad advice, all the bad teaching, all the all the mixed multitude, all the people coming in trying to take the Bible from them and laying them out and then expect, and here they are. God takes care of them in spite of themselves. And in chapter 31, he gives them a great victory. They whip the Midianites. Balaam, the guy that gave them the problems in chapter 21, 22, 24, 25, he's killed in verse 8. And in 9 through 54, they take the spoils. It's all theirs. A picture of you and I finally getting to that place where we really get some victory in our lives. <laughs> and in chapter 32, they get so complacent and get so satisfied, they want to stay right where they're at. They were putting bumper stickers on their chariot that said, More cattle! Less battle. Oh, yeah. That's where we're at today. They had some great victories. They were enjoying the spoils. And now they're saying, we don't want to go over Jordan. Let's stay right here. This says in verse chapter 32, verse 5. It says, the land, they're saying, the land is good for cattle. And we got much cattle. That's where we're at today. We got too much everything in our Christian lives. That's where we're at. We are they got so satisfied that the greatest event in the Old Testament, the crossing of Jordan, which was the key to the millennial reign of Christ, the key to the establishment of God's nation, the key to everything in the rest of the Bible. God's people, they cause of victory and they got success and they got spoil and they got cattle and they got everything they could ever want. They're now saying Why don't we just stay here? More cattle, less battle. That crossing of Jordan was the most important doctrine in the Old Testament. And it's like us today. We've lost the concept of what God is doing. And we're satisfied. We're complacent, we're lethargical, we got everything we want, we're happy. Oh, I know gas is two bucks a gallon, but my goodness, look at all that you got. You got a television set that you can get, cable company, that you can get 50 channels. Five more bucks, 200 channels. Satellite, you can get a thousand channels. You got cars, clothes you got malls that you can go to and walk down the aisle and look in the window. You can go just to see what you don't have. And you turn on the television. And it's dressed like this. Go here. Be like this. Drink this. Buy this. Eat this. Go here. Before our eyes all day long It's everything to make us satisfied. And the danger is that. As you come to church... You get good Bible here, don't you? Thank you for those three amen. Do You get good Bible here, don't you? You learn the Bible? Has it changed your life? Would you rather be anywhere else in the world than here today? Half of you said yes and half of you said no. That really bothered me, but maybe you didn't understand the question. Well, let me tell you this. And I struggle with this because I am so intense when it comes to that book. And I know it. And I also know God give me the ability for people. I know it. I'm not bragging. I, I, if you knew my life, you wouldn't want anything to do with me. But if I knew your life, I wouldn't want anything to do with you either. So there we are. <laughs> but the bottom line is this there's a danger. And some of you know what I'm talking about. There's a danger in you getting in Bible so good all the time because you get satisfied and you get spoiled. And when that happens to all of us, you get complacent. Why should you study anymore? You can come here, Bob lay it out on Sunday morning. Why should you dig into the Bible yourself? Well, I can come on Thursday night and I can hear all I need. Let me tell you something. I love you with all my heart and you're here to learn. But get this one thing in your mind. You cannot exist in this world with my armor. You're going to have to get your own. David couldn't do it when he went out to fight Goliath. Saul tried to give him his and he rattled around like a midget in a submarine. They ever tell you about the time that I preach? I preached for a convention of midgets. I did. They had me in to speak. I did, Mindy. I got a standing ovation. Didn't even know it. <laughs> Mindy's always good for the trap play up the middle. <clears throat> I'm gonna tell you. There's a danger in being blessed of God. There's a danger of having a power of God in your life. Philippians chapter 3 verse 10 says, And I may know Him, the power of His resurrection. Everybody says, I want to know God. I want to know the Bible. I want to I have the power of His resurrection. Well, you better read the rest of the verse. Fellowship of His suffering. You see, the power with God, without the sufferings of God, will lead to corruption every time in your life. The two got to balance them out. And I'm telling you, that's what's wrong here. And that's the danger in your life in my life and in this church. It's so good. We have so much fun with the Word of God, it's easy to forget and it's easy to say, Bob, why don't we just stay right here and not go on? Bob, we got everything we need. We got a nice building, we got this, we got that. Why don't we just have more cattle, less battle? I'll tell you why. Because that's not the mission. I'll tell you why. But my commander in chief called me to stand. And I love you all, but I don't care if nobody wants to stand. I don't care. I'll stand by myself. I don't care. I'll stand because I know that is the issue of my age, and I am going to stand. And you know what? It isn't about what you friends think about what you do or what you don't do. Somebody says, well, you know, you know hey, let me tell you something. Your friends are not going to give an account for you at the judgment seat of Christ. You are. And when you stand there, he's not going to ask about your so-so circle. He's not going to ask about your income. He's not going to ask about all the nice things you did, the nice little Bible study, ecumenical slurpees you went to and the group hugs you got. He's going to want to know about what did you stand for? Did you figure it out and stand? And these people, they've lost sight of the cause. They've lost sight of the cost. And they've lost sight of the consequences. And now they want to stay on this side of Jordan instead of going on in the battle because they've been so intense. And now they got a reprieve. they got a blessing. They won a great victory. And they all just said, let's just stay here. I'll tell you why I can't stay here. I'll tell you why I can't stay here. Because there's a cause. There's a cause. God has a purpose and a desire that He saved me for. And I cannot lose sight of my cause. I'll tell you something else. I'm not going to lose sight of the cost. He gave His Son on the cross for me for one reason. save my soul from hell and to say, Bob, do this for me till I come back and I'm not going to lose sight of that cost. But for me, selfishly, I'm not going to lose sight of the consequences because there's a judgment seat of Christ, brother, that every born-again child of God in every church in this world is going to stand before God and going to give an account Did you figure out where you're at and what God is doing and did you find out the issue and did you stand? Stand, therefore, having done all to stand. Power of God without the suffering of God be a mess every time. And lastly, and I'm done, Chapter 33 through chapter 36. The battles continue. They get close to Jordan. And the next, not the next book, but in Joshua, they're going to cross over. If I could give you one verse of scripture for chapter 33 through chapter 36, it'd be simply this. Please, the chapter 8, verse 8, there's no discharge from that war. We don't get out till Jesus comes back. I want to tell you something else. They wandered for 40 years. Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 39 says that one of the reasons they wandered because all of that generation that came out of Egypt had to die. God wouldn't let them go into the land. In other words, they all lost the inheritance that they had. Everybody that came out, over two million people. He said in that verse down in verse 39, only the little ones that didn't know right from wrong in that day got to go in. Every adult that left Egypt that got all messed up on where to stand, got messed up with the other nations, got messed up with everything in the world, looked at the obstacles, the opportunities, they got scared and, and, and wanted to stay. They all wandered in that wilderness until every one of them was dead. They lost their inheritance because of their lack of faith in what God had said. Every one of them except Joshua and Caleb. If I was to sum up the book of Numbers in one sentence, it would be a short sentence. It would simply be this. God blesses faithfulness. And when you don't have faithfulness, you'll lose the blessings of God. Joshua and Caleb were faithful. You're going to either turn to God or you're going to turn from God. He says, done all to stand, stand there for the farther you get along in your Bible, the hotter it's going to come in the battle. But I want to tell you something. God blesses faithfulness. I'll tell you a story. Last Thursday night, had a young man get saved. I don't want to go into a lot of details about it, but let me tell you how he got saved. He was separated from his wife. Wife came to one of our Bible studies and got saved. Came and talked to me and said, My husband's unsaved. She said, I don't know what to do. So I simply told her what to do. You know what? God saved you. You need to stay faithful to God and let God deal with him. And Last Thursday night, he raised his hand. That invitation boy, when he raised his hand, he told me afterwards, he said, I've never wanted to get saved so bad in all my life. I was so scared, preacher. He said, but Bobby says, I just knew I needed to get saved. You know how that guy got saved? He said, yeah, because you taught Bible study. Uh Uh-uh. You know why he got saved? Because his little wife was faithful. She held the line and she was faithful. You know how that little gal got saved? Because you were faithful. You brought her to Bible study when she got saved and you were faithful. You know why you were faithful? Because she was faithful. And she took care of you and brought you up, didn't she? You know how come you were faithful? It was 20 years ago I was faithful. And you remember? Remember when it was early times when it started, huh? Yeah. And that faithfulness to you, to her, to him, and him to somebody else. And I was faithful because 30 years ago in my life, somebody was faithful to me, and before that, to him, and down the line. And that's what it is, folks. God's faithful. And God blesses your faithfulness. It isn't about the obstacles. It's about the opportunities. But none of those people in that chain of events would have ever got that boy saved if they had just looked at the opportunity, uh, obstacles to the opportunities. When that little girl called me on the phone, she could have given me every excuse in the world of why it wasn't going to work. She didn't want to hear it. She just wanted to know what to do to make it work. You see, she hadn't matured where you and I are yet, where she doubted God. She believed that God could save me. God can fix this thing, too. She was still pure. God help us to that way. But that's it. Hey, it isn't about being a great preacher or being a lousy preacher. It isn't about having some building that is 50 million people in it. It isn't about having some church at 10,000. It isn't about being on TV, radio, or being a nationally known guy or not. It's none of those things. You know what it's about? It's just about <laughs> being faithful. Faithful to that book. That's all. I don't have any endearing qualities. I just got a book, and I believe it. And I've told you before, either God can do it or God can't. And if he can't, I don't want to. It's his. If that book isn't what he says, and I put all my eggs in one basket, I've told you, man, either God's going to build this church on purely that book and the preaching of that book and the loving of that book, or we ain't going to build it. I don't care. I'm not going to jump through the Madison Avenue techniques of manipulating people to come to church. You want to come, we're here. You don't want to come, Fine. I I don't care. I love you to death. I'll I'll meet with anybody in this church that wants to study the Bible. That's my job. Joshua's and Caleb. That's my job. I don't have anything else I do. We just stay in the Word of God together. My job is to help you, whatever it needs, to show you not what I know, to show you not, I just want to show you the simplicity that's in Christ that you can have all you want to have with God. It's up to you. I want to show you, you have two choices in life. You turn to or turn from, but the battles are going to be there. The book of Numbers, book of Genesis, God started it outright, wound up in a coffin in Egypt. Next book, Exodus, God redeemed them by the blood. Next book, God showed them the Levitical priesthood and the sacrifices and how to be the priest that God wants them to be. This book, Numbers, the warfare of the believer.